Welcome to When They Popped. Let's rewind to a simpler time together and dive deep into the music, movement, and mania behind our favorite Y2K celebrities and trends. Hosted by Kelsey and Mary, it's time for another episode of When They Popped. Hello, and welcome to When They Popped. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Mary. Mary, there's some piping hot tea that just broke today. Brittany... Ashley Olsen, 90s con updates. There's so many things that are happening. I think that we should start with Britney news because I know that you're the most passionate about it. Sure. So I want to hear your thoughts. Allegedly, Britney and Sam are getting a divorce. They're headed to Splitsville, as the 2000s tabloids would have said back in 2000. (laughs) What is your take on all of this? Hey, everyone's entitled to their opinion on what's going on with Britney. I think all that everybody wants for her is that she's happy and healthy and living her life. And there's a lot of inherent suspicion and uncertainty when we see these headlines or when we see these videos and weird captions and green screens because they've been dishonest with us in the past. Her team's been dishonest. So personally, that makes me inherently suspicious of whatever they tell us. And so to see an article that is very slanted to make Britney look bad, allegedly CNN confronting Britney for infidelity. First of all, I want to see more than five pictures of Britney Spears out in public in the last five years. Like, this woman's off cheating? Really? Right. I, haven't, I haven't even seen her. I remember when Sam and Britney first got together, how many years ago, his ex-girlfriend and, you know, a woman scorned, you never know. She was like, this man is a cheater. And he will cheat on her. And I've seen rubblings like on the Britney boards of the he's out in L.A. partying, doing things. She's never with him. So I just find it very disrespectful and suspicious that this is kind of a Britney hit piece when we literally haven't really seen her. (laughs) I know. And like, who's the source? Source Hmm. close to the couple? Like, yes. So. Again, I don't mean to offend anybody if you have a different interpretation of what's been going on with Britney. And I think we all just want the same thing for her. I I think we think she deserves that. And so that's just kind of my take on all that. It's a good take, Mary. Whenever something's going on with Britney, I'm just like, Mary, what do you think? Because I don't form any opinions until I talk to Mary first because you are the resident Britney expert. Oh, that is a huge compliment. But now I want you to tell us about this Ashley Olsen news. Did anyone have any idea she was pregnant? I don't think so. And honestly, that just goes to show you that if celebrities wanted to hide, they absolutely could. (laughs) I think also people are used to Mary-Kate and Ashley not actively being in the spotlight. They're so rare to make public appearances. They're so good at sort of flying under the radar and just doing their own thing with their fashion labels and their businesses. But it's so cool. She had maybe a little boy named Otto, if I'm correct. Yes, that's so cute. I wonder what it was like for Mary-Kate to have Ashley be pregnant, to have one twin go through something so transformative. I just wonder what that was like. If you're a twin, please tell us. Did you feel contraction pains? Did you have weird cravings? I'd love to know. I just think the whole twin connection is so interesting and unique. Okay, so our final item on our Y2K news agenda. Mary, it's a fun 90s con announcement. Or as you should know, Howie D just was a surprise announcement at 90s con in Tampa, which totally makes sense because he's a Floridian. And I thought it was like insane in the beginning that he wasn't originally part of it. 
but you can get your picture with AJ, Nick, and Howie for whatever it is, $150. They're doing like selfies that are cash ready for your selfies. It's a cash bar only. Go pay 50 bucks. And everyone I've talked to who's done that before has said that like you get the most interaction when you do the selfies instead of like the professional photos. So just food for thought. I wish I knew that before spending like $500 on professional photos, but I digress. And also, I'm I'm helping the Carter Street team promote his upcoming Who I Am tour. I have a link for Florida dates. Let's go together. I think I'm going to be at all of them. Because- yes, I'm like, you are. This is good. Embrace it. I love it. Yes. Yeah, so we're helping promote that. If I can help anybody get tickets, enter you into the contest. But... That is all I have. I mean, so much news. And now on to our main course, if you will. The subject matter of today's episode is now that's what I call music. Now that's what I call music. If you've listened to us literally at all before, you know that the Now CDs were like a sibling to us. We were never without one of the compiled tracks that brought the best of today's hits to us all in one place. Pre-iTunes, pre-YouTube, when we didn't have our own cassette CDs or DVDs, we were at the mercy of the freaking radio. So <laughs> the now CDs were truly like our original mixtape for so many of us growing up. And we're going to go track by track of one of the first albums of this. What are they in the hundreds now? It's come a, a long way. So we're going to go through the fifth album. That's right. Now five. <laughs> so buckle up, buttercups. And know your eyes do not deceive you. This is our second take on the Now That's What I Call Music franchise. We did Now Four. So we get into the history a bit more of like, how did we get these CDs? Where did they originate? Kind of their impact and how many, all that stuff. So if you want to go back to our Now Four episode, do it. We lay some foundation there. But as we've said many times, music is definitely a love language for Kelsey and I. We really enjoy being able to get into some of these top songs of the Y2K era. So we decided we needed to do another one. And who knows, maybe in another eight months, we'll do another one. And before we dive into it, here's your copyright disclaimer of the day. We do not own or claim to own the rights to the songs or performances in this episode. And the purpose of these clips is for commentary and critique. Sing it with me now. Okay, Mary, (laughs) kick us off, please. Now 5, obviously, is the fifth edition of Now. And it was released in November of 2000. It peaked at number two on the Billboard 200. Literally, a compilation album peaked at number two on the charts and was certified four times platinum. So this is the only non-Christmas compilation album in the U.S. to reach four times platinum. Track one on this album is going to be a favorite for many. Not for everybody, but for many. Ah! Ah, the shade! (laughs) Pointed! Pointed. And that is It's Gonna Be Me by, or excuse me, It's Gonna Be May by NSYNC. So It's Gonna Be Me is a top-tier banger that, unsurprisingly to me, is the lead song in this compilation album. This song was the second single from NSYNC's second studio album, No Strings Attached, which we got in 2000. The song was written by our 
bestie, Max Martin, and produced by one of his protégés, Rami Yacoub. Go back to our Max Martin episode, or legit any episode where we talk about music. We talk about him and that signature Swedish style ad nauseum, but I can never get enough of it. And that signature style is truly on display here. With the composition of this song, we get a recognizable intro... quick, catchy chorus that hits before the minute mark. To be exact, we get it at 35 seconds. And those heavy hitting notes and beats. The message we get from the song, what's it's gonna be May about, is this guy who's attempting to persuade a woman seemingly to start a new relationship with him as she's getting over recovering from some trauma from a previous breakup. The men of NSYNC are trying to make it very clear that they're not going to screw this girl over. They're bending over backwards for her, but for whatever reason, it's never enough. Maybe she's friend-zoned him, or maybe she's just, you know, not that into him. This is very classic Swedish uncertainty, whether intentional or not, because of the language barrier, you know, I don't know. But the message in the song is definitely a little ambiguous and leaves a lot of room for interpretation. Like, for example, I want it that way. Like, what way do we want it? Who knows? That's another Max Martin one. There's a lot of ambiguity. Ambiguity is a good way of putting it. (laughs) I got the sense that the message of the song was like, we're destined to be together. So you can try to deny it all you want. But like, at the end of the day, like, it's gonna, 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 it's gonna be my Exact. I mean, I think that is the crux of this song. I agree. And a little fun story about the creation of It's Gonna Be Me. We love to get a look at the process of the Swedish musical genius of Max Martin and company. And I found this little story in my research. Apparently, in 1999, Max and his super production squad, which included Andreas Carlson and Rami Yacoub, They went down for a little boys trip to Key West. And now this wasn't like a bachelor trip type vibe. This was like a retreat to attempt to get the creative juices flowing as they had been tasked to write another single after NSYNC finished recording Bye Bye Bye. So Andreas Carlson whistled the eventual melody of It's Gonna Be Me. And that caught Max's attention. That man's ear, he knows what he's doing. And so subsequently, the super team created the song and used that whistle from Andreas as the main melody of the track. So fast forward to the recording sessions when NSYNC's laying the track down. Max made it clear to the boys that he wanted the lyrics to be sung in a very specific way, which was described by JC in an interview with Billboard as he was saying, it's gonna be May instead of it's gonna be me. So it's the it's and the May that's technically a little different than you and I would say it. And that producer, Andreas, compared the way JT sung the note and the style of the song to the Backstreet Boys song, It's Gotta Be You from Millennium, which in the opening we hear instead of baby, we hear pronounced baby. Baby. It's the way you make make it's the way you make make kind of get me go crazy kind of get me go crazy the Backstreet boys influence is truly all around us <laughs> i have always loved it it's gotta be you and it's kind of funny that it's gotta be you it's gonna be me like i'm right? just putting that together now for the first 
I didn't like, even think of that. Literally the inverse. Oh my God. It's gotta I'm be you. It's gotta be it's gonna be my it's gonna be me <laughs> that is i like never ever thought of that that's so funny also imagine just like whistling something while you're oh doing my- your housework and it turns into <laughs> one of the greatest boy band songs of all time oh my god i mean i can't even fathom it but we can't relate and to be fair the swedish super team definitely takes from inspirations and use things that they've heard in the past to help come up with something new and Andreas, the whistler, discussed an inspiration for the song, and he referenced Joe Jackson's Steppin' Out. It's a song from 1982, and I had never heard of this song, but obviously listened for this epi. and want to play this comparison for you all so you can hear what I heard. It's kind of cool. So Steppin' Out influenced the bass line that we hear with the lyric, you don't want to lose it again, but I'm not like them. Do you hear that? I totally hear it. And can I just say, I love this song. <laughs> like, this is the song that I I feel like I've only ever really heard it in, like, old movies. And for some reason, when I hear it, I associate it with, like, those 80s movies montages <sighs> that always take place in Vegas. I don't know. Something about it just screams, like, aerial shots of the strip and, like, slot yes. machines to me. Those, like, notes sound very like, casino-y or something. There's something. I, yes! I see it, too. But anywho, it's going to be me debuted on the U.S. charts at number 42 and eventually obviously peaked at number one for two consecutive weeks. This was the only NSYNC song to peak at number one, which I'm surprised NSYNC only had one and I'm surprised Backstreet Boys didn't have any. It's just mind blowing to me. So an accompanying music video was directed by a music video legend, Wayne Isham, and it depicts each NSYNC member as a doll inside of a toy store attempting to be bought by a female customer kind of continuing this whole pick me theme of the lyrics. We get way more into the details of the music video in our TRL top videos episode. So check that out for more information about the video itself. We obviously have to talk about the meme of it all. It's gonna be me was popularized as an internet meme titled It's Gonna Be May after a very infamous Tumblr image of JT was posted in 2012. With that respective caption, I mean, and that meme went viral and it gained the attention and response from the likes of, uh, I don't know, President Obama. Literally everybody was commenting and critiquing on this meme. <laughs> He's not like a regular president. He's a cool president. Since then, this meme has definitely became a permanent fixture of our modern pop culture. In 2017, an actual study was done and viewership of the It's Gonna Be Me music video on YouTube garnered five times as many daily views on April 30th as the video got compared to mid-April. The study also found that on April 30th, there were seven times as many searches for the song and 23% more views across all in-sync music videos compared to mid-April. So unsurprisingly, and following that trend, the music video has consistently received the most traffic on April 30th annually. And as of last week, the video has over 185 million views on YouTube. Damn, that's pretty crazy. I know. And 
listen, disclaimer, I'm a BSB girly, tried and true. This is no comparison for me. I will always choose Backstreet Boys. <laughs> However, I am not one to turn my nose up in an A-plus boy band song, let alone one done by my best friend forever, Max Martin. And that's why you're a better person than me, Mary. <laughs> oh, stop it. No, it's just game recognized game. And this song for me is still in my consistent rotation. The song is 100% an earworm and perfectly encapsulates the type of music that I miss so much from this era. And to sum it up, It's Gonna Be Me was ranked at number 18 on Billboard's The 100 Greatest Songs of the 2000 list. And in 2015, Rolling Stone ranked it as the 15th greatest boy band song of all time. That tracks for me, as long as there are plenty of Backstreet Boys songs ahead of it. <laughs> are there? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think we should go through the list one episode. and That would be fun. Review it. Agree that it deserves recognition. Okay, so <laughs> moving right along to track number two, from one boy band to another. <laughs> this time, we're cranking up the heat to 98 Degrees. Give Me Just One Night, Una Noche by 98 Degrees. something outlandish because I feel deep in my bones that even if I was on death row, like I could (sighs) still dance to this song. Like it would still give me the wiggles. (laughs) It is just catchy. And 98 Degrees is just hot. And this song is all about them trying to convince a love interest to give them a chance. Just one night. Una noche. (laughs) And it's like, in what world do they even have to try that hard with faces like that? But what I appreciate most about this song is its use of the quintessential uh. <laughs> if you watch the music video on YouTube, it comes at one minute, 17 seconds. Man, these sound effects are what like my Y2K dreams are made of. I can totally relate to this, Kels, because I live for a, like a Nick Carter. Woo! <laughs> it, Britney Spears does a lot, too, in her live performances. She'll go, Woo! And it's just these like little nuances that I just get so excited about. I totally can appreciate you flagging that. Yeah, any like, uh, uh, like, uh, we used to get those all the time. <sighs> like our 2000s pop music. No one does a little, uh, anymore. Where we are just the grunts? Jason Derulo. That's uh. what the modern version is. Or like <laughs> DJ Khaled. Like it's people self-promoting instead of a little, uh, uh. Anyway. So this song was released as the first single from 98 Degrees' third studio album, which was called Revelation in the summer of 2000. If I was old enough to go clubbing that summer, I can only imagine how feral I would have gone to hear this at like a club in South (sighs) Beach. Like, run for the hills. I think I would have lost my mind. And thankfully, I'm not alone in my love for this song. This was one of the most successful singles of 98 Degrees' entire career. In fact... It became the most added top 40 single in history with 170 ads on radio in its first week. And that propelled it to chart at number two on the Billboard Hot 100. So this was 98 Degrees' highest charting single as lead artists. And it set a record. This was the highest charting single in its debut week by a boy band, which according to Wikipedia has not yet been surpassed by any other boy band to date. That's a really cool feather in the cap for 98 Degrees. Wow. 
Right? Like, that's insane to me. When I think of, like, the greatest boy bands of all time, obviously Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, like, One Direction. I know 98 Degrees is up there for sure, but I don't necessarily associate them with the kind of commercial success that Backstreet Boys and NSYNC had. But I was, girl, I was wrong. So this song was a collaboration between Claudia Ogaldi, a.k.a. Dita, who is a singer, songwriter, rapper, and two Swedish music kings, which may be the reason why we love it so much because <laughs> the Swedes are behind it. Sven Anders Bag and Arnthor Bergeson. They collaborated and produced Dash wrote for so many amazing artists around this time. Enrique Iglesias, Janet Jackson, Madonna, Jessica Simpson, so many more. I mean, this duo is incredible. Also super notable, they wrote and produced another super famous Y2K pop, Samantha Mumba, Gotta Tell You. Ooh, the Swedes. Once again, I love them. I love this. Let's make a pilgrimage to Sweden. Let's- Wait, Mary, that's such a good idea. Like you want to go? We should do a pop, you know, our own pop odyssey. And our odyssey will take us to Sweden. We'll do like our Abbey Road moment. Wait, that would actually be so funny. Anyways, song's a freaking bop. And 23 years later, I'm still dancing to it. So I'd consider that a win. All right, let's move along to track three. Jumpin' Jumpin' by my girl's Destiny's Child. So we did an episode all about Destiny's Child, and it's definitely worth a listen if you haven't indulged yet. I guarantee that you will come away with a new appreciation for everything that these girls went through on their journey to be chart toppers. And I am not just saying that as a Beyonce stan. In fact, I'm a little mad at her because the rumor mill is saying that Beehive is a buzz that she just filmed some sort of special, whether it be a documentary or perhaps finally the album visuals that we've been desperately waiting for for Renaissance during her third concert night in Atlanta. Mm. And she performed three songs that she didn't perform for anybody else. So I'm a little mad at her. She did the Dubai run, too. She did the Dubai Drunk in love oh, on that freaking raised platform. <laughs> Anyways, speaking of Beyonce, she co-wrote and co-produced Jumpin' Jumpin'. No other members of the group have songwriting credits on this single, which is probably because the group was in shambles and splintering from all angles at that point. But we'll touch on that in a little bit. Who even cares about the drama? Because this song had a screaming, the club was full of ballas and the pockets full grown when we were nine years old. Ladies, leave your man at home. The club is full of ballas and their pockets full grown. Talk about influence. Embarrassingly, I thought it was the club is full of ballers and their pockets full of chrome, like chrome wheels. I thought it was like the keys to their car in their pockets. And so when I was little, I thought it had the word fulcrum in it. (laughs) Oh, my God. I I can't tell you why, but I was and the pockets full crumb. I have no idea. Okay, I'm not alone in mishearing that lyric. Yours then. at least made some rational <laughs> sense. 
I was a nine-year-old in the back of my mom's minivan, just bopping around to Destiny's Child. Anyways, let's talk about some of the behind the scenes of this song. So this song graced us from Destiny's Child's second studio album, which was called The Writings on the Wall. So this album came out in 1999, and it was undeniably the breakout hit of their entire career. And it brought them to the mainstream. And this album was insanely successful. It peaked at number five on the Billboard 200. And as of today, it sold more than 8.4 million copies in the U.S., making it the second best-selling girl group album ever in the U.S., only behind TLC. Growl power. So Jumpin' Jumpin' was their fourth and final single from the Writings on the Wall album, which gave us Say My Name, Bills, 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 and Bugaboo. So like, imagine rubbing shoulders with this company. Yeah. Let's talk stats. So the song peaked at number three on the Billboard 100, making it Destiny's Child's fourth top 10 hit. And it stayed there for five non-consecutive weeks. The song was one of the biggest radio hits of the year 2000. And this was their second longest run on this chart, only behind Independent Women Part 1. So it spent 16 weeks within the top 10 of the Billboard 100. And this outdid even Say My Name and Bills, Bills, Bills. Hit after hit. And this music video, by the way, it's truly insane it has this really fun effect like the camera is bouncing bounce ba, ba, bounce ba, bounce and it shows the ladies getting ready for a night in the town it was directed by joseph khan the mm. icon legend and this is the last music video of destiny's child to feature farrah franklin so you may be like oh there's four girls in this music video I mean, you guys may remember, along with Michelle Williams, replaced the group's original founding members, Latavia Robertson and Latoya Luckett, after Latavia and Latoya were replaced as they tried to boot Matthew Knowles as their manager because he allegedly was showcasing preferential treatment to Beyonce and Kelly over them, mm. including not getting their fair share. So there was all this drama going behind the scenes. Meanwhile, Farrah left after just five months. The newbie, who was supposed to be the replacement, <laughs> saying that she couldn't handle not having a voice in the group and like deferring mm. to Matthew Knowles on everything. So this song is so fun. An amazing music video with a crazy tumultuous backstory for the larger group. I'm always in awe every time I dive into anything Destiny's Child related. Mm. Those those women were so driven and so focused on their goal. It's like crazy that their music was like so fun. And like I never would have guessed all the turmoil behind it. Makes sense that this is number three. It was such a huge song. Still is a song that gets everybody going. Okay, I'm going to step in and take on number four. So I listened to this, but... I didn't recognize it by the title, but then once I heard it, I was like, okay, I definitely heard this song growing up. And this is Don't Think I'm Not by the Candy Burris. Uh, yeah, this is a freaking boppity bop. I loved this song and I remember singing it. So uh, when you're out in the club, don't think I'm not. I had no idea what those lyrics meant. <laughs> but man, I sung my heart out to all of them. It is a bop. I agree. And if you don't know Candy Burris from her music, you may recognize Candy from her time on The Real Housewives of Atlanta. And she just won The Mass Singer in 2020. Fun fact, Don't Think I'm Not was actually Candy's first single from her debut album, Hey Candy, from 2000. Unsurprisingly, if you've heard of her before, I know her more as a songwriter, and she has some serious lyrical skill. 
She's penned the likes of Bills, 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 Bugaboo, flashback just to Destiny's Child right there. And she's also behind TLC's No Scrubs. Like, wowie. On that note, Candy co-wrote and co-produced this track. It was released in July of 2000 and reached number 24 on the Billboard Hot 100. Candy released a video for Don't Think I'm Not also in 2000. And get this, Candy filmed the video with a broken right leg after her leg had been crushed between two cars shortly before filming began. Like, okay, wow, that's insane and sounds extremely painful. Women are tough as nails, let me tell you. I rewatched the video for this episode and could not tell at all that she had been so seriously injured. To be fair, there are a lot of waist up shots, but she is smiling and acting like badass who has no care in the world. And I love this for her. Holy shit. Like that is insane. Also, I know her largely from Real Housewives of Atlanta. If anyone listening is a Bravo <laughs> fan, please DM us because I could talk about Real Housewives, Vanderpump Rules, all the shows. Oh, yes. Let's but- talk. I remember seeing Candy on Real Housewives of Atlanta and I was like, I wonder if, like what songs of her hers I know. Yeah. Literally hey. all of them. She's yes. so iconic. Anyways, we're moving on to track five. And that is, I think that I'm in love with you by our girl, Jessica Simpson. funny we have candy who has a connection to destiny's child mm-hmm. we have jessica simpson who obviously was married to 98 degrees is nick lachey what a tangled 2000s web we weave here maybe there'll be more entanglements oh okay foreshadowing mary <laughs> so for i think that i'm in love with you Every time I heard the opening notes of this song, I didn't let myself get too excited, like just in case it was Jack and Diane. (laughs) (laughs) Which is obviously sampled very heavily in this song. But the beginnings of those two songs are like indistinguishable until you hear her go, "Ah," like until you hear her little riff. And I always kind of like hold my breath before I get too excited because I've definitely been in public before where I'm like, fuck yeah, I love this song. And then people are like, (laughs) Jack and Diane. I'm like, no, I thought it was Jessica Simpson. This song was my personal introduction to Jessica Simpson from what I can remember. It was the third and final single off of her 1999 debut album, which was called Sweet Kisses. And this song did really well. It peaked at 21 on the Billboard Hot 100. I couldn't find like too much about the development of the song, but I would love to talk about the music video because i feel like this is one of the rare times that we see jessica doing choreography mm-hmm. she is dancing her little heart out she's in an alley with these furniture delivery people and jessica and her friends including ashley little sister mm-hmm. hop into a dance routine and they drive on the highway in an open top old looking jeep and then they end up at a carnival with all the hot delivery men <laughs> like what a fever dream but jessica is wearing this long sleeve white blouse that is super cropped and ties in the middle do you remember like tying up your shirt when you were little you'd like fold it in 
under and through the neck Mm. so that it had like a midriff bearing tie like bra effect like Mm. this is the look that I was going for I was trying to be Jessica Simpson in this music video whenever I did that in my basement to my Darren Stance groups Mm. daddy Darren clear as day I remember I took a picture in my bedroom with like a pink digital camera a mirror pic with my shirt attempted to be tied up like this and had like made a peace sign with my left hands with the camera on the other hand and like had it as my MySpace profile pic for years because I thought I was like the coolest, most grown up hot piece of ass ever. Mary, you've got to find that photo and you have to God. <laughs> I just feel like everyone used to tie their shirts like that. Like boys would do it at recess to be funny. Yes. Oh, I just love it so much. So that was, I think that I'm in love with you, Jessica Simpson. It's so yeah. fun and it's light. We love that. So speaking of lighthearted bops, let's move on to track number six, which is called Faded by Soul Decision. <laughs> a bop or should I say a bop a because soul decision is Canadian so this song dropped in 1999 as the lead single from their debut album called no one does it better and it reached number one in Canada peaked at number 22 on the billboard hot 100 when it came out in the U.S. and I feel like this was a one-hit wonder to many of us. I don't know any other songs written by Soul Decision, but man, this song is so good. I listen to it all the time, like unironically. Like it's on my pregame playlist. I feel like I've never heard it in my life and I'm embarrassed to admit that. That's so fair because I feel like I was introduced to it in college for the first time and now it's just, it's been in my rotation ever since. Who's to say if I heard it in the year 2000? I had now, I'm sure I listened to it, but I think I would just like always skip ahead and only listen to like NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Britney. Right. Like, I would just skip ahead to my bubblegum pop peeps. I think Let's this see. is our first one hit wonder on the compilation. If you know other soul decision bops, send them to us and educate us. But I would tend to agree with you, Kels. Let's pivot. Let's make it a little spicy up in here. Let's get a little crazy up in here with track seven. Shake Your Ass by Mystical. Shake your ass. Watch yourself. Ooh, I love this song. So this is the first single released from Mystical's album, Let's Get Ready. It was released on July 18th in 2000 and produced by The Neptunes. It was a huge success for Mystical. It peaked at number 13 on the Hot 100. It also features uncredited vocals from Pharrell from The Neptunes, his production team. And holy shit, that is like wild to me that these vocals from Pharrell are uncredited because... His voice is so distinct and like smooth. His parts really make the song for me. Attention all your plays and pimps right now in the place to be. I thought I told y'all dudes before y'all dudes came mess with me. Honestly, though, like this may be one of the most impactful songs to come out of the year 2000s. And I'm not kidding. Like when I heard that little do 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 like that whistle sound. It just, it brings me back. And I feel like there are so few songs that when you hear it, you just like flashback. <laughs> this is one of them. This is kind of like the uh and the woo. Um, like with the beginning when it goes that intro, like that doo doo. And he's like, mm-hmm. Where are those subtleties in our newer songs? Because I live for that shit. Okay. 
In an interview with Rap Genius, Mystical explained that he was honestly reluctant to release the song as a single at first because he didn't really think it adequately showcased his abilities as an artist. However, he stated that obviously looking back, he was grateful it was released saying it was the quote, biggest song of my career. So I give him a lot of credit. Obviously, hindsight, you never know what's going to be the right, wrong decision, like choosing what to use as a single, et cetera. So I'm glad it worked out for him. Oh, totally. I can totally understand any reservation about coming out with this song as like your first one. You don't want to be shoehorned into just like risque songs. I totally can relate. What I love about this song is to me, it almost has like a James Brown-like essence. Mm. Like the way he sings it with this like really funk vibe. It's just like hornier. It really is a horny song. It's like as horny as it gets. James Brown is a great comparison. You're exactly right. As Kelsey said, this is an extremely impactful song of this time it's been featured in major films such as the hot chick zoolander crossroads joanna man scary movie 2 about a boy just to name a few on the extensive list this is the thank- song that when the hot girl walks out it's mm-hmm. like so thank you for creating that anthem for us because i think it still holds track today so thank you mystical but we're gonna take another pivot now for track eight and we're gonna we're gonna get a little feisty in a different way over here with Case of the X by Maya. Ooh, baby, this song had me like mentally going after my schoolyard crush's quote unquote X. Like I was pissed and ready to go. Maya did that with this song. Even just like the opening chords of this mm. song. Oh my God. It is so good. Case of the X came out on July 11th, 2000, and this was Maya's breakthrough hit. It was a top five hit on the Billboard Top 100, peaking and spending three consecutive weeks at number two. It was released as the second single from Maya's second studio album called Fear of Flying. Oh my God. So I loved Maya growing up. I thought she had like such a beautiful almost like delicate voice. Again, very unique. Her song, My Love is like, whoa. I was like 12 years old thinking I could Mm. relate to it. You know, it's so much fun thinking back about that. But she had some great songs. Kelsey, were you a fan of Maya's? Oh, I loved Maya. Remember when she was in Chicago? The musical with Renee Zellweger and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And she was in Lady Marmalade. She had such an incredible range. I loved her. We love fun background stories on this podcast. So let's talk about how Maya actually got her hands on this song because it wasn't originally for her. In late 1999, Maya was working at the Red Zone Studios in Atlanta, Georgia, when she heard an early kind of rough instrumental version of the song through the walls from the room next door. And she was like, "Mm, what's that? So she stepped out of her current session and went into the other room and was introduced to the writers of the track, the main one being Christopher Stewart. And at the time, Case of the X was a rap song. But Maya was like, I want it. I have to have this. So Christopher and the rest of his writing team heavily rearranged and remixed this track to make it fit Maya's persona and her musical vibe. And this up-tempo pop R&B kind of track was inspired by a relationship that one of the songwriters, Tracy Hale, was going through at the time. So she was living this song. So I hate that for her. I'm so sorry you had to go through this. But Tracy, she said that the song revolved around a strong woman who wouldn't tolerate her man returning to his ex-girlfriend. 
And let me just say that is a message we need to continue to preach. Oh my God, I can only imagine what poor Tracy Hale was going through. So Christopher, the another one of the writers, Christopher Stewart explained when he was coming up for the music for the track, he mentioned that percussive keyboard hook, which would become the song's musical trademark, kind of what Kelsey was talking about earlier. And he said, I followed an old philosophy, which is try to catch the listener's attention. He explained, I wanted to make a statement with that hook, creating a special sound that people would react to. And remember, I feel like this song is definitely one with a recognizable and unique intro and Max Martin would be proud AF. Oh, yeah. Yes. Exactly. So the song remains Maya's second biggest and second highest charting single to date. And this is second only to her work on Lady Marmalade. (laughs) Billboard has since ranked Case of the X as one of their 100 greatest songs of 2000. And that tracks for me as well. Warranted for sure. All right. (laughs) We're going to do another pivot for this next one. And this is one I am really excited about to talk about and this is Aaron's party by Aaron Carter. So let's get into it. This is the first single from Aaron's second studio album. It was released in August of 2000, peaked at number 35 on the charts. The single was also certified gold in the United States. Let's be clear. This album went three times platinum. It was a commercial success. People were listening to it. To put things into perspective for you, Aaron was 13 when this track came out. Like, I want you all to look back and think about what you were doing at that age. It wasn't working and putting out albums. Like, obviously, there is a lot of controversy surrounding Aaron. His death was a tragedy on many levels. But it's important to remember and consider what he must have went through being in the music industry, working with Lou Pearlman, supporting his parents, basically since he was 10 years old. It's insane to think about. Just a little reminder of the background. But anywho, with the full disclaimer and acknowledgement that this song is cheesy as F, it's Mm. also really fun AF. And honestly, as I have disclosed before, I was like in love with Aaron at this age. I had conceded that Nick and I may not work out because of our damn age difference. That's the only reason. And Aaron was a perfect plan B for me. I thought he was so cute. He had so much energy and charisma and legit sounded like Nick quite often when he performed. And to a delusional 10-year-old, it was a win-win. This song showcases more of Aaron's rapping than singing. It was a cute kind of concept of a song. He's throwing a rager when his parents were out of town. And then they came home early to an absolute shit show. I love the part. He's like, I'm sure life is good with 10 seconds left. And then they play like his parents. Yes, Aaron! Grounded. It's just really cute. Oh, it's so cute. I had this album on repeat. I loved this whole everything. How I Beat Shaq. I loved it all. And what I liked about this song, yes, it was cheesy, but it was age-appropriate fun for us. Mm -hmm. Like, it was this or shake your ass. There was no in-between. And I know. I loved it. When he's like, someone spilled juice on my mom's new cushion. Then I turned around, someone broke a lamp. I hope it was expensive. I got that from France. Kids 
I literally almost tried to put that in to say it was my favorite line. And like, I was like, she probably won't even know what I'm talking about. But Are I was you like, kidding me? I didn't know you were like an AC girly. Oh, I was an AC. I remember this, how the CD was designed too. It oh, yeah. had like a big star on it. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminded me of like the Dallas Cowboys yeah. <laughs> uniforms for some reason. I don't know. Why. Or like the Texas flag. I don't know. But I distinctly remember putting that in my Walkman and bringing it on the bus every day. <laughs> Catchy, right. age appropriate. He got a lot of shit, but it did go three times platinum. People were listening to it. So this music video also was just a freaking blast from the past. Like, this is the house party you wished you could have had when you were a tweed growing up. But like, obviously, we could have never pulled off. And it's just like crazy rewatching it, looking back how young all the kids looked. Like back in the day, they all looked like so grown up to me, but now they just look like little babies. And Aaron was being managed by his mom, Jane, at the time. Sigh, that's a whole other. And he said that she actually came up with the concept of the video, which is, again, interesting. During this time, Aaron filmed four music videos for his album in four days. And that included this one. And they shot them all in Canada. So they took him to Canada to film these videos. And the inquisitive person in me was like, hmm, why'd they take them to Canada to do this? Well, let me tell you why. The child labor laws there are much more relaxed. And so they basically filmed for four days straight. Aaron was 13 years old. They went through the night. He was sick with food poisoning, but the laws were not protecting him. His mother was not protecting him. Aaron's party was the last one that they shot out of those four videos. And he said he wasn't feeling well. It wasn't really as much fun for him at that time, but he just kind of pushed through it. But again, this industry is so fucked up for kids. Also, he's such a good actor. I've had food poisoning one time in my life and I'll never (laughs) forget it. I couldn't do anything. I can't imagine being a 13-year-old feeling sick and having to be like charming and a pop prince of America. Like, that's insane. It's ridiculous. But Aaron had done a couple interviews about this, you know, within the last five, 10 years, kind of looking back and he just... Of course, he had the memory of like flirting with all the girls from the video and laughing at that. He's like, I think I left with three or four girlfriends after that. But those car pre Hillary, pre Hillary, uh, and yes. pre Lindsay Lowe and Love Triangle. Yes. I, okay, you guys, you're going to be so proud of me because I really tried to keep it together for this next track and not have it take 15 minutes of our episode. So, number 10, we're coming in with Lucky by Britney Spears. Lucky came out on July 25th, 2000. It was the second single from Britney's second album, Oops, I Did It Again. (sighs) This gut-wrenching ballad with eerie foresight was co-written and co-produced by the Max Martin, obviously, which if you've been listening to this podcast at all, any episode, you will recognize those heavy-hitting intro beats. This is a story about a girl named Lucky that quick escalation to the chorus, or how about that key change for that final chorus? That upbeat melody that contrasts the sad tone. It's a Swedish special. It's Max Martin perfection. He can truly... uh, Sad songs, happy songs, upbeat, (laughs) depressing songs. He can do it all. 
So in case you have lived under a rock for the last 20 years, the song tells a story about a girl named Lucky. Oh, what an iconic intro, but Lucky is a famous pop star that despite having everything in the world, all that she wants, she still feels so lonely. A tale as old as time, right? As I've expressed before, I have a really hard time with this song now. I love it so much. It's one of my favorite Britney songs, but listening to it now, knowing what Britney has gone through this past decade and more, makes me really sad. I like cry because I'm not a sane person. I have a very hard relationship with this song, but it's very, very special. It peaked at number 23 on the Billboard charts. It did way better in Europe in comparison to the United States. For some reason, they just get it over there better than we do. I don't know what it is. I spend way too long discussing the David Myers directed music video on our TRL episode. So head over there if you want more background information on the video. I love this music video when she sprinkles the confetti over herself Mm. when she's watching herself make these decisions. I just love it. The Hollywood faint at the door. Everything is just so good. It's a music video that will go down in history. It's like one of the greatest of our generation, I believe. And yeah, Mary, this is the most brief that you've ever been about Britney ever. I remember in our Oops, I Did It Again anniversary episode featuring Troy. Troy. We play F. Mary Kill with all songs from the album and I gave Mary one of Lucky's and she killed Lucky because it is just too emotional. It hurts me. It hurts. Like, speaking of sadness, let's <laughs> move into track 11 because it is show me the meaning of being lonely by Backstreet Boys. This is another one that I also kept it very brief because we've talked about this song and its music video so many times. So it should come as like no surprise that this is one of the greats in our collective opinion. Another Max Martin bop. This single was bestowed upon us from the Millennium album as the boys' third single. Oh, I love this song. It Mm. debuted at number six on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and earned the boys a Grammy nomination for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals. Grammy nominated. Snub alert. Freaking snub city, but like at least they were nominated. Truly, I don't know what we can say about this song that we haven't already in our Backstreet Boys Deep Dive, which was three episodes or our TRL episode. But let me read a review from Rolling Stone magazine that I think puts it pretty perfectly. This is by Arion Berger. He said this song digs its melodic claws into your skull on the first listen. It's the swooniest blending of the five vocalist timbres to date and mighty pretty besides. Swooniest? Mm-hmm. I couldn't have said it better myself. This song is swoon worthy. I love the orchestral swells and This sound clearly resonated with listeners around the world because it reached top of the charts in the US, UK, Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, Switzerland, Austria, Belgium, Finland, Germany, Ireland, Italy, and Norway. Australia didn't love it as much, but it was still in the top 20. So like Australia, are you okay, girl? Australia, have you heard the blend? And we have a lot of wonderful Australian listeners, but the blend in this is second to none. I always say this, the song is one of like the most perfect examples of the boys and their signature blend, like how well their voices really 
go together. As Kelsey said, this is so obviously a Max Martin production. Listen to those heavy notes. There's something missing in my heart. Just so signature of the Swedish influence. You could still even hear it on a ballad, like Show Me the Meaning, like Lucky. My favorite part is the final chorus. Like Kelsey said, an orchestral swell. You need to go back and listen how in that final chorus, they all go up like a note compared to the other choruses, just to like Lucky. It's a very signature Swedish move and Oh, chef's kiss. It's perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. So good. And the music video for this also has so many layers and references to the group's history. It references Brian's open heart surgery, odes to Dennis Pop, one of their mm. original producers who sadly passed away. So definitely take a listen to our TRL episode for a full deep dive of all the little Easter eggs in this music video. Backstreet Boys did it first. Taylor also- Swift took notes. All right. Thank you. That was a great one, Kels. Moving right along to track number 12, that is Incomplete by Cisco. This was a really kind of cool new song for me to learn about. I had only knew of Cisco from the Thong song, and this showed me his more um, romantic side, I would say. It reminds us all, once again, how actually beautiful his voice is. Like, whether he's singing about being incomplete or thongs, the man has a beautiful voice. I think he does flex some vocals in the thong song, like, thong. You just love when everybody goes. Yeah. Yes. But the song is just, for me, I am not focusing on the vocals. It it was much more focused on the lyrics when I was growing up a little perv. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to hear swear words and dissect the lyrics of the thong song. I wanted a thong really bad, okay? So Incomplete was released in June of 2000, and it was the third and final single from Cisco's first solo album, Unleash the Dragon. And it was written by the Montel Jordan. And this was extremely surprising to me. This was Cisco's biggest solo single. It was certified platinum and his only number one hit in the United States. Like, again, I would have bet my life it was the thong song, but alas, I was wrong again. The message of the song is like super sweet. Montel Jordan explained that it's literally about a guy who had everything, but without the girl in his life, he's incomplete. Now get this, originally Cisco wasn't really particularly fond of this song and he legit had to be bullied into recording and releasing the track. Oh my God, is this Cisco's Lucky? Oh my God, that's hilarious. I mean, comparisons could be made, but yes. So that was track 12 and a fun new one for me to be exposed to. I love it. We love Cisco. Pro Cisco. He opened for Backstreet Boys. All the connections tangled I'm well. I'm telling you. It's woven. Let's go into track 13, which is I Want to Be With You by Mandy Moore.
So we're mm-hmm. in our Mandy era on the pod. We talked about Cry and A Walk to Remember a few episodes ago. I frankly wasn't familiar with I Want to Be With You oh. as Candy or Mandy's other songs. Like I knew it, but it just like wasn't one of my favorites. Mm. It was released on April 3rd, 2000. And it was the lead single from Mandy's album, I Want to Be With You. But fun fact... I learned that I Want to Be With You was actually a reissue of her debut studio album, which was called So Real, which was released in 1999. So I Want to Be With You was released in May 2000 through Epic Records five months after the release of So Real, like the original parent album. But internationally, I Want to Be With You was released as her debut album. So it's just kind of interesting. The more we dive into music on the pod, the more I realize, the less I know about the music industry. It's truly all a mystery to me. Anyways, this song was released as a single from the soundtrack to the 2000 movie Center Stage. And that obviously played a huge inspiration in the ballet-filled music video. Did you watch Center Stage, Mary? I don't think I did. I always saw it on the blockbuster shelves, and I feel like I never pulled the trigger. (laughs) But I loved this song. Mandy's voice is so special, and she always just sounds angelic. And it's definitely highlighted in this song. Oh, it's a super sweet song. I'm with you on center stage. Like my sister loved that movie and I thought it was like too intense. So like Mm -hmm. I didn't like it. So get this. I want to be with you peaked at number 24 on the billboard charts. And it was Mandy's first and only top 30 single in the U.S. Criminal, a crime. Who do we snub city? Ugh. God. Let's move on to number 14, another lady who has had her fair share of snubs and unfair treatment. And number 14 is Doesn't Really Matter by Janet Jackson. We love Janet. Justice for Janet. Love that she's having a renaissance and performing again. Doesn't Really Matter came out in May of 2000. And it's actually from the soundtrack to the 2000 film The Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, starring Eddie Murphy. And it also appeared on her seventh studio album and one of my favorites, All For You, which came out in 2001. Doesn't Really Matter topped the Billboard charts for three consecutive weeks, becoming Janet's ninth U.S. chart topper. It was also Janet's 19th single to be certified gold. And this made her only the third singer after Madonna and Whitney Houston to achieve this damn she's a force so here's our when they popped fun facts about this song when asked to contribute a single for the nutty professor soundtrack janet stated that she would consider doing it if she found an appropriate song that she felt fit and worked in the movie and to help inspire her the film's director peter seagal drove right over and brought a rough cut of the movie to the studio where janet had been recording all for you she watched the movie, she got a vibe for it, and she decided to write an up-tempo love song rather than a ballad. And so Janet was a writer and producer on this track, and the lyrics were actually based on a previously discarded poem that she wrote. Okay, talented queen, slow down. I can't keep up with everything she can do. But apparently the poem's lyrics were kept intact, although like the structure was changed to fit a song. The Joseph Kahn-directed music video resembles an abstract futuristic environment based on Japanese culture. 
It features an an IBO, or I don't know if it's pronounced IBO or AIBO, which was the very first consumer artificial intelligence robot. This IBO was created for the companionship of adults and elderly people. I had no idea that these existed, but it had all these like morphing clothes, levitating platforms, a futuristic Acura vehicle was being advertised. Like there was some product placement going on. We got a making the video for this music video and the production cost over $2.5 million, which is basically equivalent to $4.2 million in 2022. So it was one of the most expensive music videos of all time. And I mean, my God, it was all futuristic. That's definitely an expensive feat. That's wild. The cost of the music video. I remember when Larger Than Life came out. That was the most expensive music video at the time. So clearly it didn't stay that way for too long. I don't know if it's the most, but it sure as hell is up there. (laughs) Love it. So on to the next track 15 back here by BB Mac. Swoon. I love this song. I love these boys. This was the debut single by English pop rock band BB Mac. And it was written by the three members of the group. Their names are Christian Burns, Mark Berry, and Stephen McNally. You may remember from one of our early episodes that BB Mac, the group's name, stands for the last names of the members of the group. And this song peaked at 33 on the Billboard charts. This is one of those songs that has like a super sad subject matter, but it's Mm. super upbeat and catchy as all heck. What I thought was so fun about this song, which is such an earworm, it's such a bop, they wrote it in 45 minutes. Like, oh my God, the genius must have just been flowing out of them. (laughs) So want to hear something cool? So I remember seeing this music video all over TRL in the year 2000. Well, apparently there are two versions of Mm. this music video. So the first one was made for a UK release and it was filmed in Los Angeles. The second version was made for a US release by the same director, but it was filmed in London. It's like backwards. It is inverse. It's totally swapped. It's just so funny to me. And it just goes to show that we like to see things that we don't see every day. And I'm sure that when they were bringing BB back to the U.S. audience, I mean, what American girl doesn't love a boy with an accent? But yeah, so it features them performing in some really iconic landscapes in London, Canary Wharf the London Eye. They're trying to get the attention of a girl who passes them by. It's just so funny to me. I had no idea that there were two videos. Me neither. Since you mentioned them, I also read that Rolling Stone ranked this song as their 63rd greatest boy band song of all time. And to me, again, that ranking tracks, but just such a yearning love song, boy band, Y2K pop perfection. So moving right along to track 16, we have absolutely in parentheses, Story of a Girl by the (laughs) band Nine Days. This is the story of a girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world. And while she looks so sad in photographs, I absolutely love her when she smiles. One hit wonder alert. Did you know that this was one of my favorite songs growing up? 
I love it. Loved it. So this was written for nine days. So that's the name of the band. This was written for their fourth studio album, which came out in the year 2000. But it was their biggest hit to date. So Mm. let that be a lesson to never give up. It could be your first single. It could be your 18th single. Who knows what's going to hit and when. (laughs) And this was written by the lead vocalist and guitarist of Nine Days, John Hampson, for his wife, who was his girlfriend at the time. So I think that's just really sweet. And maybe one day my husband will write a song about me. And this song reached number six on the charts. So what an amazing one hit wonder. I love that. I feel like the structure of the song was super creative and like the lyrics were almost like flip and kind of whimsical, like cry to river and drown the whole world. Like it just was kind of unique for its time. Super cute. It was an easy sing along in the car song. Still is today. Let's pivot to some angst or maybe not angst, but just a a little bit of a different genre vibe, but one that I love. And that is Kryptonite by Three Doors Down. All right. I loved this song. This is the debut single of Three Doors Down. What a way to start with a bang. It was released in January of 2000. It peaked at number three on the Billboard charts. It's the band's highest charting single to date. The song ended up going up five times platinum in the United States. As I said, I love this song. It would always pop up on my burned CD mixes in between my boy banders and my pop princesses. And I just think it speaks to the quality of the music when it can appeal to those who aren't necessarily super into that genre. That is so funny that you put it on your mixtapes. I can't stand this song anymore. And I think just because I heard it so much, like it just reminds me of going to like soccer practice on a Saturday morning. It was just always on the radio. And my dad had this rule that whenever we were in his car, he got to pick the music and he'd be like, when you have your own car, you can pick the music. (laughs) And this was always on his favorite radio station. So I just think of like running errands with my dad on a Saturday. Oh, that's kind of cute though. I love the memory of running errands with my dad. I don't love that this song was like the only thing on the radio and I wasn't allowed to change it. (laughs) So I thought this was cool. The song was written by the band's vocalist and drummer, Brad Arnold. And he wrote it in a math class when he was 15 years old. And it was one of the first songs that he ever wrote. Like, okay, once again, these talented youths. Like, I wish I was able to do that instead of playing MASH in my math classes. But I digress. So, again, this song, I think, has depth. I think it has different meanings to different people. I think it applies to a lot of different situations. And as of July 24th, 2003, so just a month ago, Three Doors Down has performed Kryptonite a total of 617 times, making it the band's most performed song. Wow. <laughs> that is wild. I wonder how many times Backstreet Boys has sung I Want It That Way. I wonder that type of thing and like wonder how like sick of it they are, but hopefully not at all. Speaking of angsty and a different vibe, we're going to go right along to track number 18, which is Wonderful by the band Everclear. kid with divorced parents who had lyrics to this song in their AIM profile, rise up! This is our time! (laughs) So this song was released as the first single from their fourth studio album, Songs from an American Movie, Volume 1, Learning How to Smile. Yes, that is a mouthful... (laughs) 
But this song reached number 11 on the Billboard charts, and this was the band's only top 40 hit. So this song is sad, it's moody, it's angsty. It tells the story of a divorce as perceived by a child. And this was inspired by the upbringing of one of the band's members and the writing and the writer of the song, Art Alexicus. It's a sad song. So let's move on to something a little more upbeat, Mary. <laughs> okay, speaking of heavy-hitting upbeats, let's wrap up our Now 5 countdown with It's My Life by Bon Jovi. It's my may not expect me to stand this song, but I do. And let me tell you, I love getting the opportunity to talk about this song because all roads, they do not lead to Rome. They lead to our bestie, Max Martin. And it is truly an exemplification of the range this man has. He is genre-defying and his talent and ear for music has no limit. I love when Mary can whip out a Max Martin fun fact. Also, I love Bon Jovi, too. I took my brother to his first concert, and it was to Bon Jovi. Oh, I mean, they have good songs. I mean, they're not our typical genre, but you can't deny it. Well, It's My Life was released on May 8th, 2000, and it was Bon Jovi's lead single from their seventh studio album, Crush. It was written by JBJ himself, Richie Sambora, and obviously Bestie Max Martin. The song peaked at number one all over Europe, and it only hit number 33 in the United States, but it did go two times platinum. It's My Life is arguably Bon Jovi's most well-known post-80s hit and helped introduce the band to a new, younger fan base, aka, hello, me. Let's get into the Swedish influence of it all. You have to notice the distinguishable intro. Those distinguishable word pronunciations, like, it's my life. It's Wow, wow. Yes, those noises, like it has Sweden written all over it. And legend has it, Max actually wrote this song long before knowing Bon Jovi would be the one on it. To be fair, John Bon Jovi, Richie Sambora, they made unique edits to the lyrics, notably the reference of the fellow New Jerseyan Frank Sinatra, where they say, my heart is like an open highway. Like Frankie said, I did it my way, referencing Frank's song, My Way. They also added the line in the second verse for Tommy and Gina, who never backed down, which is a callback to their first hit, Living on a Prayer. Tommy and, Gina, back down. and, you know, what I always found was interesting was that when talking about the song, like, Impress, and after it came out, John Bon Jovi wasn't really originally quick to give Max Martin credit that he likely deserved in the creation of the song, which is surprising. He would be like, oh, yeah, he was in the room or like, yeah, he played a bit of a role. It was kind of dismissive when there's just Max Martin written all over it. And a lot of people in the know knew that Max had written it way before even meeting Bon Jovi. So that's a little surprising and disappointing. However, over the years, I will say he has changed his tune and given the credit that he deserves. Good. Because we were about to beat him up. I know. No one talks about our bestie like that. But the music video was directed by icon Wayne Isham. I think we've talked about him at least once already on this episode or listened to any other episode where we talk about any music video. He's on there. 
as of today, I looked today, the video has 1.2 billion views on YouTube. It's Bon Jovi's highest viewership on any video. I think it eclipses in sync by hundreds of millions. <laughs> I mean, that's impressive as hell. <laughs> wow. Ending now five with a literal banger that is on a high note for sure. This was so fun going through, Mary. I know even though not all of these songs are like my absolute favorite and I'd want to listen to them like over and over again, it's so nice to be reminded of Mm. those radio earworms that we heard all the time in the year 2000. I miss it so much. This is us like going back. (laughs) I know. I miss it too. Well, thank you everyone for listening to us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us five stars wherever Mm. you get your pods. Leave us a little review and maybe we'll read it on the pod. Also, make sure you're following us on Instagram at when they popped pod. We post so many fun clips, a little behind the scenes and hot takes like Mary is going off in the stories about Britney right now and you don't want to miss that next time there's a new development so make sure you give us a follow thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week bye bye